Hello, and welcome to Furloughed, where we talk about defining moments worth talking about. My name is Leonard Cochran, and I'm here with Steve Otterstrom. Steve, how are you doing this week? I am doing good, I think. <laughs> you know, we, we, are, we are now in week four, so um, it, it, and I, I know I said basically the same thing last week when we were doing this, is it just, it feels like it has been much longer than four weeks and, yes. and also it just seems like the time is just just flying by and, and you know i feel like 2020 has just been that way in general like i mm-hmm. I, I feel mm-hmm. like this this year has has taken many years to get through <laughs> to this point um yeah but yeah I, we're doing well i'm very happy to say that we're all um, here in my house, still, still healthy. Um, we don't have anyone who's, who's been affected by, uh, the virus in, Good. in my yeah. immediate right. family or even in my extended family at this point and hope to keep it that way. Um, the numbers here in, in Utah re- remain relatively low and it appears that the curve is kind of flattening, uh, mm-hmm. which is, which is a good, uh, development. How are things, um, on your side of the country? Yeah, Steve. Well, uh, going kind of like, kind of like you. Good, I guess. <laughs> uh, I, I know this week it was crazy. Couple couple of big events this week. Uh, uh, well, I did get my first couple of unemployment checks, so I'm caught up on that, which means I'm paying bills. So that's good. Uh, but I tell you, uh, the ener- my energy level, and I am doing a lot of work around the house. I painted the shed and uh, all that stuff. So, I, I, it, but my energy level does feel like it's kind of dropping some, and maybe it's the physical work is why I mentioned painting the shed because I'm just not used to that. Uh, but it was interesting. I woke up Friday morning and I thought it was Monday, and then I realized, oh wait, no, it's not Monday. It's Sunday wait, no, it's not Sunday, it's Saturday, and finally realized that it was Friday. So just, I mean, how far off could I be, right? So I, I'm kind of having to use my phone and look at the calendar to keep myself straight on what day it is and everything. Um, but on the upside, I, I did not forget my anniversary. So this is my wife and I, uh, this past Wednesday, my wife and I celebrated 31 years of being together. And uh, it, it's interesting as we are on shelter in place to think about not only are we furloughed steve but we are shelter in place so basically i've been calling it lockdown and so for our anniversary again i mentioned before i've got eight people in my household four generations so it's like we've got to get out of the house and so we we leave the house about noontime or one o'clock in the afternoon and uh what are we gonna do everything is closed right and so we go to Captain D's and get takeout, obviously go through the drive through and it sits near a graveyard that has a fountain and a small pond. And so we sit in the rain in the car watching this fountain as we eat our Captain D's. And it's like the furthest thing from being romantic, but it's time alone and time of quiet and silence because I have two grandkids among those eight people that are here. And so we did that for a minute and then it's like, I had told the kids when I left the house, I said, well, we'll probably not be home for dinner. So you guys make sure and just do what you want. Don't worry about us. And after a couple of hours of stalling around, it's like, you know, (laughs) we need to go back to the house because there's nothing to do here. So that was my anniversary, Steve. (laughs) You can only enjoy a fountain in a cemetery for so long. So long. And then that fountain becomes less exciting. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, that's... um, that's just a really interesting coincidence because you said Wednesday was was your anniversary, 31 yes. years. This Wednesday, so two days from now, will be uh, my and my wife's anniversary. We have it on the same day. That's kind of cool. There um, you go. <laughs> but uh, it works better that we way. have our 20th anniversary. And uh, so we've been going to that same thing. Well, what do you do to celebrate an anniversary when not only is – is is there this this virus that's out there but right. there really can't go and do anything in particular um we've thought about maybe trying to go camping or uh but even a lot of those the campgrounds are are closed yes and um, here. so there's no no way to go do that and we're thinking 
you know, last year coming into this, we're like, it'll be our 20th. We're going to do something phenomenal. We're going to do something amazing uh, because for whatever reason, as human beings, we like round numbers. And so we need to celebrate those a little more. Somehow they're more special than a 19 or something in in there. But um, there, we, we still haven't decided what we're going to do. Um, yeah. But now that I know how romantic uh, cemeteries and fountains are, I think uh, <laughs> it's, we'll, it's we'll, an option. It's an option. We'll look for and one. I, yeah. And, and for what it's <laughs> worth, my wife, Paula said, this is about like we do every year. <laughs> so, you know, um, it, not that it loses significance, but we've, we've done the planning as you talk about, we've did it for our 10th. We did it for our 15th, our 20th, our 25th, and uh, they, they've never worked. So, in fact, I, I do, in September, I have plans for our big one, since this is 31, make it a big one, because last year, uh, my mother-in-law moved in during my anniversary period, so we didn't do anything big then, and so I have plans in September, and so we're, we're still waiting to see if that's going to unfold uh not only from a pandemic perspective but financially after going through all this fun stuff so interesting times you know it, it that is interesting in talking about that, that our anniversaries have often been the same way that we have um had bigger plans than we had realities that yeah. you know most often it's like last minute we're going to a buffet and uh you know that um and it's interesting because it's just been we look at those times and go, well, of course, this is the way it was when we got married because uh, the weekend we got married, uh, both of us were still in, in school. Um, I was going to the community college here and um, Elizabeth was just finishing up her, her final semester. And uh, so uh, she finished her last final, I think either the Thursday or the Friday before. And then we got married on a Saturday we honeymooned on mooned on Sunday and Monday I had finals. So, um, (laughs) lots of preparation. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't really this amazing romantic thing. And we always figured, and even then we, we had this plan that we were going to do this amazing, um, trip by train across country. And we were going to do that, you know, towards the end of the summer, probably August, uh, but coming close to when we were doing that train trip that we were going to go all the way to upstate New York um, on Amtrak's and, and see beautiful mm-hmm. things along the way, um, probably about a month before that was going to happen, Elizabeth started um, getting sick a lot in the morning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, my son is the cause of that. And the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> and the rest is history. It didn't yeah. happen. And so, you know, we, we've always had big, big plans and, and they, they generally fall through. So I know that people have been wondering why we call this furloughed instead of Stephen Leonard's lectures on love. But <laughs> now you all know we, we are not the ones to come to for romantic advice. Yes. And if you don't believe us, we each have a partner you can ask and get confirmation. <laughs> well, yeah, Steve, because if they do a, a podcast, it'll just be called Disappointment. <laughs> yes. Well, let's let's shift before we go too far down that love, uh, love life and the encouragement area. And, and let's talk while we're talking about current events. Let's let's kind of talk where we are now. I mean, the good news is, or at least I, maybe it's good news, is we are beginning to have murmurs and talks and conversations, of course, in our country about the shelter in place being removed. And I, I know Georgia currently is beginning to ease their restrictions. I know Mississippi is early on the list. Tennessee is early on the list, although I don't fully know how it's playing out. But you, you've got some data yourself that you did some research and uh, just, just share some of your thoughts or your findings there if you would. Yeah, I'm, I'm just looking on the uh, website for John Hopkins uh, University and uh, they have, um, you know, of course, all the world maps, but looking specifically at the uh, new viruses that have, or not the new viruses, but the the new instances of people infected with with the virus. And so looking at, um, you know, the United States, um, it appears that the curve is fairly flattened. Uh, We're not seeing, we're seeing about the same number of new infections. Mm -hmm. Um, And this, of course, runs on a five-day average so that we don't see 
tremendous spikes and dips. But it, it appears to kind of be flattened. Uh, we're not going up and we're not going down. Places like Italy has seen a, a steep downturn. Uh, we're not seeing, uh, we're seeing that the instances of new infections really declined um, every five-day period. Spain is down. In fact, I, I saw an article where they were pointing out that that children in Spain are allowed to go out and play for the first time. It just showed yeah. these kids yeah. running wild, like, yay, we're getting to move outside. <clears throat> so what they've done appears to work. France is um, on a nice decline. The UK is in a similar situation with the US where the, the curve is is uh, somewhat flattened. Maybe there's a little bit of a decline with it. Um, actually, in the fi- last five days, it's it's been up a little bit, but only only slightly up. Belgium is uh, relatively flat. Uh, Germany is on a very nice decline um, as well. Iran has gone down significantly. They've appeared right. to have really turned the corner on that. Um, no one is doing as well as China. Uh, China has not only uh, flattened the curve, but the rates of new infections are are negligible. Uh, the yeah. Netherlands is, and I know China is beginning to open businesses and all that as well. So they, to me, I would think we'd be wise in kind of monitoring China as a model as to what we can do, quite likely, or especially yes. some of the other European countries as well, for that matter. And across the board, I think what what the experts are are, are generally saying is we need testing. We need yeah. we need to we need to get a way to really get ahead of the testing, so we know where the virus is at, um, and it's and, and testing has really improved. Um, we're, we're doing way more tests than we than we were ever doing. They're talking specifically about the United States because many countries are testing at that level, and we're just not there yet. Our per yeah. capita testing. Uh, some some people point to well we've done more tests than other countries but with <laughs> with 300 million people unless we get our per capita testing yeah. up, um, it makes it difficult for us to really turn the corner on this and see the 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 nice decline that many other countries are getting and also time does that as well yeah. um, provided that that we all make good decisions I think that's one of the things that. Uh, is really interesting about this global pandemic, and and, and if it is a uh, a silver lining on it is that we are we are now sharing an experience with the rest of the globe, and I think that creates a little bit more of a worldwide citizenship. Like I'm part of of something bigger. It's not just what's happening in the U.S., but it means we all have to make good decisions. Um, we all need to uh, cover our faces when we go out um, in public, and um, and really do those those social distancing measures that hopefully uh, will make a difference. Yeah, let's, let's hope so. Well, it does kind of spur on a little bit of optimism, that's for sure. So, Absolutely. I think there's plenty of reason for us to think this will not last forever. Yeah, well, <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go ahead and shift gears again. And, and uh, as we think about the situation, I, I know you and I did some reflecting. One of the things kind of interesting, and I, sh- I think it was my thought, maybe I shared with you, is that uh, it seems to be the folks that are currently working are the, the essential workers, as we're calling them currently, a lot of times those are the folks with the name tags on their shirt. Those are the folks that... Um, I'm not saying all, but many of those positions that are still working are are folks that um, typically are not glamorized in our culture as being the great careers. Uh, for example, I have a friend that just posted pictures. He's he's put concrete in his driveway and done some work, and I know that's that's what he does for a living is is put down concrete. And so that's an essential worker. And then we have so many white collar folks like yourself and I that here we are <laughs> making podcasts rather than working. So it, it's kind of an interesting phenomena. And uh, it, it, I know my hope of this, and I'll let you jump in and share your thoughts too, but my hope really is that we as a culture uh, begin to shift what we value as far as uh jobs and the responsibilities that people have. And when I say shift, I guess really what I'm saying is I hope that we begin to have more respect for some of those jobs that in the past have not been glamorized. 
uh, and just recognizing the necessity of the work that every individual does, whether it's a white collar or whether it's a blue collar. Uh, your, your thoughts on that, Steve? Have you had yeah. a chance to kind of reflect on that? Well, and especially as you were talking, I was just, it, it brought back memories of uh, after 9-11. And um, I remember one of the one of the things I, I found interesting is that, of course, you know, 9-11 happened um, in September. <laughs> and then um, you, you had uh, just a little over a month later, Halloween, and they were talking about how many more people were going as firefighters and as first mm. responders uh, during that time. That, that there's kind of like was this this recognition of pay some homage who, to them, yeah, yeah, and who the, who are the heroes? Who are who are our heroes? And uh, just the other day, yesterday actually, I I went and did some shopping, and in the grocery store, the uh, people who were working there were wearing shirts that said "Heroes at Work." And, um, yeah, and it, it's, it's true because they, uh, those that are still in these essential positions, many of them are exposing themselves to risk. And, and in the grocery stores you walk through, you see plenty of people in that at-risk category. And of course, what we're learning about this virus is there's nobody who is not at risk. Mm. It, it can be a big deal. In fact, um, I read an article this last week talking about how the instances of stroke is so much higher in young people who have the virus. So there's nobody who's not at risk, but some people are much more at risk and yet they're still stocking shelves. They're still checking out our groceries. Right. And um, even though they may use that personal protective equipment, there there is an extra risk there. And we have to remember that they did have the option not to go to work that day. Yeah. And they chose to do that for a reason. And so going back to what you're saying, I hope that one of the things that comes out of this is a, as a larger or a greater deal of respect for everyone and how they contribute. And uh, yeah, it is a little bit difficult sometimes to sit back and go, I thought my job was important, but apparently it's not, <laughs> you know, apparently the world will actually be just fine without it, at least for a few months. Yeah. 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 Well, I've, I've found that out about every job I've left. I, I thought I made more of a significant impact than I found out later that I did make because they, they didn't shut the doors after I left. So no, yeah. no. even times I'm like, oh boy, they're really going to miss me when I'm gone. And, and maybe they did a little bit, yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, they, they went on without me that uh, I wasn't an essential worker. Yeah. Yeah. Well, last week we talked about K through 12 learning and uh, so as we kind of talk about the essential workers and all now, I think it really plays well into what we're talking about regarding education. And so as we think about higher education beyond those high school years and whatnot, um, I, I know I've always had some pretty strong opinions about education uh, I, and based on some of those K through 12 experiences that I had. I, I mentioned it with some humor, but it is true that I worked hard to be an average student. And in high school, had I not gone to a vocational school for half a day, my junior and senior year, so in other words, uh, well, I'll let you do the math. I've, I've realized my math on the fly is not so good after listening to last <laughs> week's podcast. But nonetheless, uh, half a day for two full years, that brought my GPA up in school from a C to a B. I actually graduated with a 3.0, but it was because of getting an A in vocational school. And mm -hmm. the interesting thing, though, it, I went into a food service career, and that's where so much of my education came from. When I graduated high school, I did go to culinary school, at Johnson Wales. It's now Johnson Wales University, Providence campus. Shout out to uh, them, uh, but nonetheless, uh, so I'm, I'm very much wedded to the idea that a vocational type education is extremely practical because of the hands-on application of it and extremely valuable. And I recognize not all degrees can be vocational, but in my thinking, I would love to see more of the academic world have more vocational type application, you know, some ways to actually implement and practice what you learn. And I think that I, I would love to see that. What uh, What about you, Steve? Tell us a little bit about well, your background and your thoughts of higher ed. Yeah, yeah. And, and just to kind of piggyback on what you said in, in talking about, 
the value of having a, a vocational education and even in teaching in that way. I mean, both you and I, we are corporate trainers. Um, we have worked in that corporate learning environment. And we know that people learn a lot hands-on. And it's really unfortunate that we have this perspective a lot of time that um, if someone is learning something in a hands-on environment, it may not have the same value as someone who's learning it in a college environment. And, and, and really, there's really nothing that you do for gainful employment that wouldn't necessarily be beneficial to be taught in that hands-on environment. But going back to what my experience has been and, and my post K through 12 experience, what I find really interesting is one of the things that really kind of turned the corner for me in my learning experience was not actually going to school, but when, as we talked about in my first, uh, in our first podcast, the time I spent as a Mormon missionary and, and that time I spent there learning Spanish in particular, mm -hmm. that if I think about the things that have really made a difference for me and getting the positions that I have. Um, it was learning Spanish and I didn't learn Spanish in any kind of college or official capacity. In fact, I took Spanish one twice in high school and I didn't take it the second time because I was so good at it. But when I was put in, in an environment where I could learn it hands-on through immersion, right. I actually found that I did it better than most people, that I actually could learn it faster than, than a lot of other people. So finding a hands-on way of learning is oftentimes the best way to learn something. And then, you know, I look at my, my positions, my first position moving into a human resources uh, type job. There is no way that I would have gotten that job coming from outside the property that, that was hiring if I didn't speak Spanish because they already had people who had the other basic skills that were needed. In my current position, I don't believe I would have been successful in getting it had it not been that I had had this opportunity to learn Spanish. So there are some things that we don't that we learn in a non-formal education, many things, maybe most things that we learn in this non-formal education that have a much larger impact than, than even some of the things we, we get out of our formal education. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I know even here, uh, I, I won't call them by name, but we have a local university that had a computer program and you could graduate with a four-year degree and never actually even touch the computer itself it was all theory and programming language those types of things but they never actually touched the computers with it and uh, i realize there is a place for knowledge i'm not trying to dispute that but when we have when we have knowledge without application it, it, it's not necessarily that big of a thing or that useful well, of a thing, you know? It's very interesting returning even to the concept of, of learning Spanish. You know, I, I've never had any formal teaching with it other than kind of hands-on. So mm -hmm. I had the time when I was a, a, a Mormon missionary. And then after that, working in human resources um, on site at a property that had more people who spoke Spanish than spoke English, mm -hmm. you know, that gave me you know, several years of having the opportunity to practice it. But what I find interesting is I've spoken with many people who got minors in Spanish or, or majored in it. They're taught by the people who are supposed to know it better than anyone else. They have PhDs in this language and they come out with a minor in a language and they can't speak it. Yeah. And, and, and I, I believe that there should be some accountability for that. That, and I'm not saying accountability for the students because what they teach oftentimes in this university setting is the code for the language. They mm -hmm. teach how to build it almost like a mathematical formula, but they don't ever teach the fluency of it. You know, that they can talk about and explain how to break down the conjugations of verbs and how to grammatically put a sentence together. The only thing they can't do is put the sentence together yeah. when they need to put it together. And um, and I do believe that in, in many areas of higher education, we have not held them accountable to say, uh, just because you know it, if you can't teach it, you maybe shouldn't be in that situation, or maybe you shouldn't be building curriculum that leaves people with knowledge, but not a practical way to use it. Yeah. Well, I know from my own experience, I did go back to college uh, at the age of 21. That's not when I completed my college degree. I did that later, but I did go back. 
and at that point in time, I, I took French because being in food service, I thought it would be great to know a little bit of French. And just like you were mentioning there, the French teacher was teaching us past participles and adverbs and proper nouns and all this kind of stuff. And I barely passed English with the English language and to do all that in a foreign language. Uh, and then of course, eventually the teacher spoke more and more French. And once the class was fully done in French, I, I was out. I had a deck of over 200 words that I was trying to memorize uh, and understand what part of speech it was. And I can't even diagram a sentence today in English, much less a foreign language. And so just, it, it, it's, uh, talk about a foreign concept, a little play on words there. It just mm -hmm. does, didn't make sense, you know. And I think in the higher education world, that's the, th the challenge that I've seen kind of repeatedly. And as you um, had alluded to, so oftentimes the professor or the instructor is someone with a lot of knowledge, but not always have they been in the field and been working. And so it's hard to bridge that gap. And we even talk about it, you know, you and I on our day jobs as corporate trainers, uh, we talk about it. There is disparity oftentimes between the, what is taught in education and the day-to-day -day application in the jobs. And so it, it's kind of one of those reoccurring themes, I guess, that I'm going to keep driving here. Yes, I, and, it, and I think it's an important theme, especially as we do look at things like corporate education, because um, it's very easy, even in corporate education, to have that same level of disconnect where you have someone who maybe has only ever had a corporate position and they've never been in that line position, yet they're writing verbiage, they're writing rules. And, and I want to be really careful about indicating that I, I don't want anyone to think I believe that that's not possible to do because you certainly want to always be playing to your strengths. You might be a better instructional designer than an actual instructor, or you may be a better instructor than an instructional designer. But there has to really be an emphasis on um, making sure that what we're teaching is actually creating behavior changes and that those behavior changes are creating the other changes that we want. And, and I think in many ways that, that comes down to this concept of making sure that we're actually um, – like we say in the hospitality business all the time, um, inspecting what we are expecting as well to make sure that it give, it's giving the result we're looking for. Well, I think I think uh, it, it, we kind of talked about it last week when we talked K through twelve. You know, just my own observations. I think one of the real keys to education, number one, is having a hunger, uh, and then as as far as the application of it, I think that's where we have to have some kind of wisdom, some kind of sense about the fact of what's transferable, uh, a transferable skill or a transferable application. Uh, for example, and I know you shared some about being a painter in the past, and you and I on outside conversation prior to the podcast, you mentioned how that helped you out with some project management skills. So talk, talk to that just a little bit, because I've, I've got some project man management skills that I learned, but it had nothing to do with project work either. But talk about painting for just a moment and that transferable skill. Absolutely. And, I, and, I, and just to be clear, I am not an artistic painter. I, I couldn't uh, <laughs> draw something that anybody would want or paint something anything anybody would want to look at, but painted houses. And, and that was actually my first job out of high school. I'd had jobs during high school, but so I, I guess it would be my first full-time job. And um, what I found so, in, what I find so interesting about that today is that it really was one of the best instructions I could have ever gotten in how to do project management. And of course, you know, when you're talking about painting a house, this is certainly much uh, simpler of a project than um, a lot of the large corporate responsibilities or you know, opening a hotel or all the moving pieces that come into that. However, uh, things that I learned there is one that perfectionism will always kill a project. Mm. Uh, when, when you're painting a house, uh, your prep work could be done indefinitely. There's always more scraping. There's always more sanding. There's always more, uh, you know, priming that could be done to make sure that you get this right. There's always a straighter line 
that could be made. And so the, the learning that you have to understand where good is at and not let perfection make it so that you actually can't complete a, a job or make that job done well. You know, also just learning things um, about how to keep a project flowing that uh, it doesn't do you any good to overestimate the amount of paint that you're going to need. Because if you do that, you're just going to end up with another color that nobody <laughs> wants. Chances are you're never going to get another house that wants to be painted exactly the same. So as close as you can get to 100% is, is good. On the same note, running out and having to wait two or three hours to get the paint that you need or the product that you need is a great way to kill your project as well. So um, doing things just right and, and, and recognizing the tolerances that have to be acceptable in any project that you do um, were, were interesting learnings. And they're things that still help me today in, in projects that I work mm -hmm. on. Yeah. Now you you had even even I think um, bigger opportunities to learn that through your experiences working in, uh, as an industrial baker is well, that the right yeah. <laughs> right yes. term? Well, I, I guess it would be a, a commercial bakery. Uh, so yeah, I did work at a bakery plant that produced product for thirteen grocery stores. It was a mom and pop owned corporation uh, company. And uh, so we, we manufactured all of the baked goods in the bakery section, breads, cakes, pies, donuts, Danish croissants, every, everything you can think of. And the bulk of the work was done on the shift that I worked. And so you think about it, you know, these products come in daily. Somebody is producing those products, maybe slicing the bread and bagging it and delivering it all within an overnight period. And so we had to just kind of back to your house type analogy there. You know, we had to know how much dough it was going to take to make each of the different types of breads and what order we should produce that product to be able to get that final product packaged and delivered to the store in time. And we, so we had multiple work strains at the same time, multiple work streams, I should say, at the same time. And all of that, the crescendo of getting it to the door by, you know, 5.30, 6 a.m. So it could get out to the uh, grocery store so they could get it on the shelves before most of the customers come in. And so that has been invaluable to me in helping me to keep multifaceted projects going. And the interesting thing, Steve, as you talk about it, uh, just like you said about with the house, the perfectionism, you know, there's real practical life lessons we can learn from these things too. You know, so as, as I, you know, I don't know that it applies in my furlough world right now because I'm not necessarily working, but the fact that getting close, you know, having good is oftentimes good enough that it doesn't have to be absolutely perfect. And uh, so I, it's kind of a neat lesson that you shared there with that. But uh, anyways, that, 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 that is my background prior to going to the learning world. And it's interesting how I can apply those same principles today. And two, computer programming was another area. I did take a class in computer programming. And so that helped me kind of that if-then variable thinking. You know, it helps set me up to kind of analyze things and think about cause and effect and the results of those things. And so that was another valuable tool along the way, too. And thinking about it from the perspective of, of what we do as, as corporate trainers, you know, one of the things that um, is always brought up when you talk about um, teaching adults, and it's actually true when you're teaching children as well, is that you want to base whatever you're teaching people and experiences that, that they have had. And one of the things that I think we sometimes don't do very well in that corporate environment is stopping and considering the experiences that people already have. We often think about it from the perspective that we are the experts, that we are the ones that have the information and we're sharing it down to them. But, you know, in in just talking about our experiences, what I learned as a painter. <laughs> um, and then later, you know, what I learned working in food and beverage um, in, in doing what we, I worked in a cafeteria and doing the burger bar 
<laughs> basically the people would come through and you you just have to try and keep the burgers going and and getting them out and and looking at a crowd and recognizing how many you needed um what i learned working as a janitor uh in in <laughs> and in fact i was a janitor at a college is what i did in high school uh and I, I, I learned that college students are really messy. <laughs> and, and I also learned that leaving your cup on, by your desk is, is, shows a lack of respect, not just for yourself, but because you expect someone else is going to come and clean behind you. And yes, that's what I made my money doing, but I had enough to do without having to clean up after you know a bunch of college students that, uh, <laughs> that couldn't find the, the wastebasket at the end. And, and um, I even think about that when I go into a movie theater. So there, there's just so many things that um, experiences that people have and in the corporate learning environment, maybe what we need to remember is that we need to give them time to tear, tell their stories if uh, we wanna have that learning environment where the learning goes both directions. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, and there's no question that that actual facilitation of learning versus the instructing of learning is, is where that learning really sticks. You know, it's the opportunity to share a story, uh, to hear from others' experiences. And I find, uh, and I'm sure, you know, that uh, the, the Heath brothers and Made to Stick in their book can verify, you know, the idea of learning yourself makes it stick much more so than somebody regurgitating or espousing, uh, uh, what's, what's the expository, <laughs> somebody enunciating, <laughs> telling you what you need to know, whatever that's called, uh, you know, but having that aha, your moment yourself is where the value is. And that way it sticks to a degree that it's not forgotten. And that's really only done through an exchange, uh, through a conversation, as far as I'm concerned. Well, that's something that we often say, especially as we've done like train the trainer type courses, is that telling is not training. Mm -hmm. That, you know, and oftentimes that is where we go wrong in trying to, to teach something, regardless of where it's at, whether it's within your home, whether it's within a corporation, whether it's in higher education, that telling someone something is just making noise is all you're doing. You're making noise and they may decide to take that noise and use it, but it's not actually training them in any way. And I, I think as many times as I have done information security protection training, or I have facilitated uh, sexual harassment training. And as often as I trained it, I'm not sure I ever saw behavior changes come out of it. And, and when I look at the design of those training, they were designed to be compliant. They were designed to be a training that we could say, we told them not to mm -hmm. and, and shift the liability away. But they weren't really designed in a way to give people the ability to change or to encourage people to change behaviors other than saying, don't do this, do do this. Um, but with that said, the holy grail of training is figuring out how do you take it to um, a level where people actually have a behavior change that takes place. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and I think the best time that telling works is when somebody asks you to tell them, <laughs> tell me how you do this, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and that seems to, uh, seems to be most effective there. Well, and that's uh, something I... Um, a coworker of mine taught me uh, about 10 years ago. And what he said is when they ask, they're ready to learn. And that was, you know, given from this perspective. And it's also become something that um, I also tell other people who are moving into the training realm, that one of the best ways to kill training is to tell people, if you have any questions, please hold them for the end of class. Because, it, and it really, it's a very selfish way of training because you're training from the perspective, I don't want my uh, organization structure to be changed in any way. I've already decided exactly what I'm going to say, when I'm going to say it, how I'm going to say it. So please don't do anything to disrupt that. But the truth mm -hmm. is, when people ask a question, that is their way of saying, my brain is primed and ready to learn at this point. And generally speaking, they'll be in line with the rest of the class much better than you are in line with the rest of the class because you already have this knowledge. You already have this information. And so for you, your structure makes sense. 
but for them, it's such a gift when someone will bring a question out because it actually will make your structure much stronger. So, uh, I mean, there maybe have been times that I've said something like, um, well, I'm going to address this later on today. However, let me give you the quick answer. And yeah. then I give the quick answer without really changing the whole structure. And I'll say, and I'll explain to you how this works a little more later on, but let me give you the quick answer. Because um, when you don't answer that question, what ends up happening is they're still either thinking about that question the whole time and missing all the content that you have because they're waiting for you to answer that. Or uh, what happens is the question disappears and uh, by the time you get to it, they forgot they had the question and it really is never resolved in their mind. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is a frustration. That's for sure. And that's where it really does come into that, you know, a strong culture of learning is one that really is individualized. I'm not a big fan of the whole idea of learning styles. And I want to be really careful when I say that, because I'm not saying that everyone is the same and they learn in the same way. But the problem with learning styles is it says you are an audio, an auditory type learner, you're a kinesthetic type learner, you're a visual type learner. And the truth is that it really depends on what you're learning. And sometimes a visual way of teaching is better. Sometimes an audio um, way of teaching is better. Usually the task is a better indicator of what the best type of learning um, method, you know, should be used. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try and individualize someone's learning as much as possible. And uh, that's where I think, especially in that in the corporate learning or in any kind of uh, learning environment, if we can create an individualized learning structure, that's where we're going to be most effective. Yeah, and of course, when you are instructing to the masses, that's where the challenge comes into play, correct? You know, we, we how do you individualize something for multiple, multiple people? And so I, I think there's some creative ways that are um, happening now that we can kind of do that a little bit through like computer programming, those types of things, uh, testing analysis, and then produce something as a result of that person's knowledge. But that is definitely the ongoing challenge, I think. It's interesting because it's an ongoing challenge, but it's also one of those things that we've kind of cracked the code on long ago. We just have to look at the places where we've cracked the code and it's been effective. Like we think, well, what if I did have to do a training for 20,000 people? I tried to get a concept across mm -hmm. to 20,000 people at the same time. How would I in any way be able to individualize that or make it <clears throat> an individual experience? Because we're not necessarily talking about individualizing, but we're talking about creating an individual experience. And then you look at things like Woodstock or you look at um, large concerts. And people go to that concert and yeah. what a, a really good entertainer does, and I, I've been told never be an inner trainer, <laughs> but I do feel like an inner trainer might be the most effective type, you know, a trainer who's also an yeah. entertainer. Um, but what they do is they don't make you feel like you are lost in a sea of 20,000 people. They make you feel like you are right there with them. And and that fact that you're with multiple people only adds to the energy of mm. it. And so perhaps the key that we're looking at, and, and I think this is something that has to exist across the board, is you have to make a connection. There has to be a personal connection in order to create effective training. Yeah. And that's one thing that sometimes becomes difficult as people move into the virtual world, although both you and I are virtual trainers and we know that it is absolutely 100% possible to make a virtual, uh, to make a connection in that virtual world. It gets a little more difficult when you have pre-recorded training. Mm -hmm. And and maybe it, it's a matter of increasing that production value to really create that connection in yeah. those pre-recorded trainings. Yeah, no, that makes good sense, Steve. That makes good sense. Yeah, I know some of the other um, somewhat uh, I, I don't know if calling them the myth is accurate or not, but, you know, we hear so much about attention spans now as well. And as you're talking about a different medium, talking about a concert and the impact it has and the individualization of it, 
what comes to my mind is, you know, we talk about, oh gosh, you know, if you're not doing something every two minutes, you'll lose your interest and you this and this and this and this. And of course, YouTube is shortened attention spans and, oh, it's just horrible from the training perspective. Um, and one of the things that I point out to people is look at the most successful blockbuster movies that there are, you know, um, they, they are, you know, the, the, the latest and greatest Marvel movie there, you know, is those movies are just shy of three hours long. You know, the Titanic was one avatar was one, uh, all, all of the top three movies were somewhere around two and a half hours or so long. And so it's not that we don't have an attention span for longer. It's just the immersion of it. And then of course it, kind of changes the formatting you talked about learning styles as you're watching the movie you don't recognize their stories within the story and their shifting of scenes and things like that and so that helps an individual to stay captivated stay in the moment and stay interested and so i think using those same types of tools if we could incorporate that into Higher learning, for that matter, K through 12 learning, I, I, in corporate learning, any form of learning, I, I think we'd see ourselves much more successful. I think that goes into to the neurology of it as well. Um, I mean, you have semantic memory and you have episodic memory. Uh, you know, and our memory is our learning. It's what whatever we learn, we learned it through. Uh, and then, of course, there's also explicit and implicit. But speaking specifically of our of our, our explicit memory or that our our cognitive vocalizable memory you know we have um, if we we either learn it episodically so there's a story that's involved in it or our semantic memory which is categorized and so when we think about people having a short attention span really it's not a fault of their attention span it's just a fact that we are not staying within categories that make sense and so the brain now says, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know how to follow this. We've actually severed the connection. And then we said, no, their attention span was bad. But it was just that we not we we didn't maintain that connection. And 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 we think about connection maybe from an emotional perspective. And I think that probably is a good way of looking at it because it is and, and, and of course, different kinds of learners. Um, some people are maybe more emotionally driven. Some may be more analytically driven. But whatever that connection is, we have to work actively throughout any training process to maintain it. We can't just say, it's up to you to bring that connection to me. And I think it goes to that other myth. I hear all the time, you know, I can I can give you the knowledge, but I can't make you want to learn. And and that is really unacceptable for anyone that is claims to be a learning professional, that our main goal is to give them the desire to learn. If we're not giving that, that, that desire to learn, we really aren't doing our job. Yeah, and that's, that's where uh, the concepts of gamification come in and the success of that and when we can apply those principles to learning you know, to have small failures, and then they want to learn, you know, based on what they've learned from their failings. And so just just so many things come into play that we can do to help improve education, be it, again, whether it's corporate or anywhere uh, that we can use those in. And I think so often what drives it is just the necessity of time to get the product out and uh, the necessity of of not grasping what needs to be done, I guess, in its own way. And above all, I think we need to have confidence. We need to believe in the people that we are teaching. We have to believe that that it is possible for a behavioral change to take place. And I think that really is the difference between something that's purely compliance, where we're just putting the information out there because we feel like we have to. But when we really believe that that change can take place, it changes our, our, our entire mindset, not only how we deliver it, but how we design the training as well. And, and until we do that in the corporate world, we will continue to have training that isn't effective. We have to believe that they really truly are capable of doing the thing that we're training them to do. Well, those are some good words of advice, Steve. And not only, I think, from a facilitation perspective, having that belief, but I know from a learner perspective as well, you know, we have to have a desire to learn. And I think when we put those two together, maybe that's the perfect marriage 
uh, <laughs> come full circle back to our anniversaries there, uh, you know, because when we understand the necessity of learning and we understand the value of learning and when we recognize there is value, I need to emphasize that we recognize there is value in learning, uh, then we want to learn. And that makes it so much easier to facilitate when you have somebody hungry as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Steve, we're about out of time. So Lix, just go ahead and summarize a few thoughts here of what we talked about today. Uh, so definitely, you know, we need to be creative in the way that we teach and the way we learn. And I think we've got a real opportunity as we're in our furlough situation. I know I've picked up and done some additional reading and done some e-learnings that are available free and online. A number of offerings are out there. And so I, I want to encourage you as our listener to take the opportunity to develop and grow yourself during this time. And we'd certainly love to hear about what you're doing and how you're leveraging your time. Uh, you can reach us at furloughedmailbox at gmail.com. Drop us a note there and share with us. Uh, Steve, any, any wrap-up thoughts you have? I'm just excited for next week. So um, everyone stay safe, wash your hands, and I'm looking forward to speaking to you again next week. All right. Excellent. Thanks, Steve. And speaking of next week, we're going to have a guest speaker, uh, guest speaker, a guest joining us and speaking with us. Uh, we have Greg Johnson that's going to be joining us. So this will be our first guest on our podcast. So we're looking forward to that. And we've got some other guests upcoming in the near future. We've got Paul Cherry that's going to be coming and speaking to us about the five stages of grief. You might remember from our podcast last week, that we talked about that emotional curve and what that means, uh, that emotional curve in regards to transition. And Paul Cherry commented on there how similar that was to the five stages of grief. And so we've invited him to join us. And so he will be joining us. And then two, we've got another guest that's going to be joining soon after that talking about a global perspective. So someone located outside the U.S. So you get to hear a differing perspective on furlough and then on the uh, pandemic and all that it entails as well. So again, just want to encourage you to drop us a note. Let us know you're listening. Tell us what you like and what we can do better. Again, that's furloughedmailbox at gmail.com. And with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up our day today. And thank you again for joining us. Look forward to seeing you next week. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.